First Peter chapter four. Those who uh, haven't been here long or uh, haven't been here often, um, let me say this before we, while you're kind of flipping over there. Uh, one of the realities of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you come across things that you may not want to preach on that are not necessarily uh, subjects that you get enthused about, but are there. Okay? Uh, we don't want to avoid the uncomfortable portions of Scripture, uh, the uncomfortable truths uh, of, the, of Scriptures and of our faith, uh, but we must try to understand them, that we might believe them, and uh, that God may work in us in the midst of them. So uh, th- today is one of those sermons, I think, that I don't relish uh, just by my own personality, I guess. Uh, but nonetheless, here we are. So, chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. While it's part of the uh, previous paragraph, or the same paragraph, I thought to do this justice, I should kind of separate it away from it textually, but we are we will see the connections to it as we kind of do this. Um, let's pray. Father, sometimes you speak hard words, but you speak them because you love us and because you love the truth. You are the truth. And yet the truth for us can be very painful to hear. Yet we ask that You would set us free by the truth, that You would sanctify us by Your Word, which is truth. In the midst of this, help us to see Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life as we look at these difficult words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our family is not unfamiliar with strep throat. Eli has had strep throat a number of times. Uh, usually we catch it on the far end of it as he gets the rash. And it's not a big deal when one person has strep throat. You know, you get the antibiotics... Yeah, the, the household is a little different. It's quieter, especially if it's Eli who's not feeling that well. Uh, you make do, you know. But when everybody has strep throat, it's a little different. Because now the people who normally would offer care to the sick person are sick themselves, which is the experience that we had earlier this year when everybody got it. 
So Amy and I were also laid low by the plague. And in fact, the uh, the ones who were doing better were the ones least able to assist anyone else, <laughs> as it turned out. Why do I bring this up here? Because I think there's a shift in Peter's thought through the course of this paragraph. It's It's one thing in a community if a few people are suffering persecution. But it's something completely different if the whole community is enduring persecution. And so I think part of what is going on in this portion of First Peter is that Peter is shifted to the reality that not only will individual Christians suffer persecution, but that churches in cities like the ones he's writing can suffer persecution. And that's a little different. It's harder to deal with than if just one or two people in the community of faith uh, suffers at work for their faith. The big idea in the midst of all of this is to entrust yourself to our Creator as He judges, oddly enough, His people. Let's start with the fact that Christ begins judgment in the living temple. Those are hard words to say. They're hard words to hear. But Christ begins judgment in the living temple. Peter has written here about suffering. He's written, as we've seen in this context, about glory. He's written about the judgment that is to come. He's written about persecution and the experience of shame and the recognition that though you feel shame now, you will not feel shame then because Christ shall vindicate you. But now he drops something of a bomb on these people. A bomb which should not be uh, foreign to them because we see it in places like Ezekiel 9, which we'll get back to. For it is time, Peter says, or the way we could say that, the time is come, the time is here for judgment to begin at the house or from the house of God. It is the right moment. It is a time that has been fixed by God for this very purpose to take place in their lives. When it happens in their lives, they were not to be uh, confused by it, but to recognize that God was at work even in those difficult things. And so just as God was at work in their circumstances, in those difficult things, God is also at work in our difficult circumstances, to do particular things. And part of what the bomb that Peter is dropping upon them is that judgment is not some far-off event. But the judgment was something that that was near. It began and it continues within the church, which here he calls the household of God. And earlier in the letter, he called the living temple that we are being fashioned into. It starts there at the center of God's redemptive work. While we read from Ezekiel 9, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ezekiel 8 before we talk about 9. Because in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel has this image, this this 
vision, and essentially it, 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 it can actually freak you out a little bit because he's grabbed by the head by the spirit, which is strange, and he's taken from Babylon where he is as an exiled priest, and he's brought all the way to Jerusalem to see the temple he's supposed to be working in. And there in the temple, they have set up numerous abominations, false gods, idols within God's holy temple. It's a pit of apostasy. And the Spirit shows Ezekiel what God's going to do about it. And what we see in chapter 9 is that God is going to bring judgment upon the nation and upon the city of Jerusalem, and it's going to start in His house, His temple, that has been polluted and profaned. And what's interesting, of course, if we paid attention, is that those who groan over this, those who lament over the idolatry of God's people, uh, those who who are repenting, shall we say, are marked or sealed, and the ones who are participating in all of this with no remorse whatsoever, they are going to be slain beginning at the temple and moving throughout all of Jerusalem. That's a horrifying picture. But that is the picture that I believe Peter is drawing upon for them to recognize what is happening. The visible church is full of faithful Christians and fake Christians. We see this clearly in Matthew 13 in the parable of the weeds. Okay? Uh, if your theology holds to a pure church on earth, you've got to take parables like that one into account. Don't like those parables? I wish I could erase some of those parables from my Bible, but I'm not um, Thomas Jefferson, so I don't do things like that. <laughs> my, my, captive, my, my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And I want you to know that. There are things... I wish were true, but aren't. There are things I wish I could do, but I can't. Because my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. His boundaries, not the ones I want to imagine for myself or for other people. So, the church is, uh, the church on earth is full of faithful Christians, which is good news, but also has many fake Christians, not so good news. Okay? And so these fiery trials that Peter speaks about come to purify Christians, but they also come to purify congregations in the capital C church. Now for them, the fiery trial was primarily about persecution, uh, but it, and that can include that for us. But I think we can expand it to talk about suffering uh, in general. There are, there are some afflictions that come upon a church because of unfaithfulness. If you read the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, 
all but two got some bad news because there was impurity within the church. This is not a New Testament sort of thing. We see it not only in Ezekiel, but we see it, for instance, in Malachi 3. Here, the church has been purified, but once again it finds itself in trouble. He will sit, talking about this expected Messiah, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And how do you refine gold and silver? Fire. You heat them so the impurities come to the surface. We see this similar idea in Psalm 66.10, Zechariah 13.9, Proverbs 27, verse 21. You've got the references. Go look at them later if you want to. Part of the reality is also revealed in another place in Matthew 13, and that is the parable of the sower. You see, Jesus tells this parable and then He explains it to the disciples And the context, I think, is very important. There were masses of people listening to Jesus. But how many of them followed Jesus? And so Jesus explains uh, this parable to them so that they would understand not just what what they were witnessing in the earthly ministry of Jesus and his preaching, but also that they would know what to expect with regard to their own preaching when Jesus was gone and they had the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, what happens when I preach or when you offer the gospel? That there are some that are going to be, you know, the, the, the birds are going to snatch up before there's even anything that looks like faith. And so there's going to be some people who hear the message and they're just going to walk away unconvinced of anything. But I really want to focus on the reality of what he says, the rocky soil, the people who have no root, that looks like they're Christians for a period of time, but what happens is afflictions come and they perish because they have no root. They're not grounded in Jesus Christ. They're not united in Jesus Christ. And so while they look like a Christian for a time in the normal operations of the Spirit, when hard times come like persecution, they're gone like a rat out of an aqueduct. Quicker than the eye can see, vanishing. But there's also those the, the seed that is cast among the thorns. The people who maybe. They look like Christians for a time, but we see that the cares of the world choke them out. Now, let's keep this in mind. Even the good seed thrown in the good soil will experience hardships. They experience the same weather that this other seed experiences. They just respond, in a sense, differently. The one that is united to Jesus Christ will be purified as they repent of the sins that are revealed. The faithful are disciplined, but the fake Christians are judged. And yet, Scripture uses this word judged in a way that we tend not to use it. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so Peter, just like Paul, is using this word judged to refer to real Christians. But in a way 
that they are not condemned with the world. That's hard for us to figure out, isn't it? It's difficult for us to kind of um, sort of make this distinction. And so I think both Peter and Paul are discussing this reality of we experience discipline. And it feels just like judgment. Because the Father is saying, He is judging. What you're doing is wrong. And I'm not pleased with that. Our union with Christ remains intact, but our communion with Christ experiences a shift through the experience of this discipline. And so we see that sin can corrupt churches. Not a pleasant thought now, is it? But we see it. Racism can corrupt congregations, denominations, whole regions of churches beyond denominations. Within our Reformed community, we see the problem of kinism, which is a form of racism, an idea of segregation where people stick to their own kin. That is contrary to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But we see other sins. We see greed, corruption. These things can contaminate congregations and God deals with them. Even within our own context here, we see uh, um, the sins that Paul mentions, the, the sexual sins that Paul mentions, but not just that. If we're not covering over a multitude of sins with love, that's a sin. And when a whole church does that, judgment breaks out. If a church is, is sinning by not recognizing and stewarding the gifts that were, uh, are within that body, then th- that church is corrupted. And there needs to be repentance. And so even as we, we look at the, the context of, of what Peter says, we, we recognize that there are things that we wouldn't ordinarily perhaps recognize as cause for God to be concerned about the health or life of a congregation. And so if we don't exercise discipline, what Peter is essentially sort of saying is, God does so that the living temple will be purified. I'm not a Mormon, nor do I want to be a Mormon. But I've gone to the Mormon temple And after I was there, they were going to cleanse it. (laughs) Because they believe that people like you and me contaminate it. Okay? In the living temple, sin does contaminate, and the Father does cleanse through the Son. And so Christ begins His work of judgment in the place that is closest to His heart. His household. Secondly, judgment destroys those who do not believe. You see, this judgment starts in God's household, but it doesn't stop there. We see that it actually spreads out to encompass the wicked. Peter argues, if it begins with us, and it does, What will be the outcome for those who don't believe 
the gospel. Because we believe the gospel of God, we we are not condemned, but we recognize that those who do not believe it are outside of Christ. They're not united to Him. And they are in worse shape. We are in a sense like the person who makes the plea bargain. We turn state's evidence. Not on other people, but on ourselves. That's what confession of sin basically is. Yes, Lord, I've done all of these things and worse. Have mercy on me. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the things that he said was, when they will then say to the mountain, and he's speaking here of the judgment that was going to come in AD 70 upon Jerusalem, fall on us into the hills, cover us, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? And so he's comparing the greatness of judgment, the terrifying judgment that was experienced in A.D. 70. He's saying that that's when the wood's green, when there's life in the tree. How much worse will it be when the tree is dry and ready to burn like kindling? This word here, those who don't believe, these are the people who refuse to be persuaded to the truth of the gospel. These are people who refuse to believe that Christ is the Son of God who saves sinners. And so there's a, there's a hardness of heart that is present as he speaks of this thing. The more a person hears and rejects the free offer of grace in Jesus Christ, the harder their heart gets and the worse their judgment will be. And I do not say that lightly. He moves, in a sense, from our light and momentary troubles to their eternal weight of guilt and shame which will bury them. Peter quotes from Proverbs 11.31. But if you turn to 11.31, it's going to look a little different. Because Peter is not quoting from the Hebrew, which your ESV translates from. Peter is quoting from the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which his readers read. They didn't read Hebrew, they read Greek. Okay, So he quotes from that, and so it's slightly different. And so we read... If the righteous is scarcely or or saved with difficulty, is another way of putting that, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He's recognizing, I believe here, that we are saved by grace even as we struggle under the weight of sin. You and I, we are not saved easily. You and I are saved with great difficulty. Not so much for us, but for Jesus. We were delivered by the difficult cross that Jesus bore. We were delivered by the difficulty of day in, day out obedience to the whole law for His people that Jesus gained for us. We struggle. 
The righteous here is used of those who walk with God in faith and repentance, not people who are perfect. Even as they're saved or rescued with difficulty, the dying of the substitute. So, in a sense, there's a moment here that we should be pondering the amazing and sufficient grace that is able to rescue the worst of sinners. In preparation for last week's sermon, I was flipping through a book on on John Newton, and I got overwhelmed. Because John Newton was a mess. (laughs) Man-stealing. He was involved in the African slave trade. And not just tangentially, but centrally. That's what he did for a living. Transporting people from one part of the world to another part of the world in chains so that they would be enslaved the rest of their natural life. And he took advantage of women in the hold of that ship. He was a blasphemer against God. He, as part of his work in the slave trade on on the ships that he... Surely he is guilty of manslaughter. God can love a sinner like that. He can love a sinner like me. What an amazing grace. That's why that song had to come from that man. Because he tasted of a grace so profound that ordinary sinners like you and me, we just sometimes don't get. Those who have boring testimony sometimes don't get, but I'd prefer the boring testimony. Mine's bad enough. Behold, Jeremiah 25 says, I will begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and you shall go unpunished. You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. He's saying right there, it's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to start in my temple, but it's not going to stop there. It's not going to stop in Judea. It's going to go everywhere. Do we see it now? We do if we have eyes to see. Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed Not just because of sin, but through sin. One of the ways in which God judges a culture or society is by giving people and communities over to sin. And so, part of what we should see is this racism and this hatred and this bigotry is part of the wrath of God upon our culture because we have turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so people are filled with hatred and therefore stir up strife as opposed to loving and accepting those who look or act 
differently than they themselves. Abortion on demand is an act of God's judgment upon a nation that does not value the life of the unborn. And so the judgment is there. It's happening. Those who reject God and are devoted to sin, and that's the idea that's there with with the, the ungodly and sinner, people who are devoted to sin will, in a sense, be crushed. That was Mark Twain's nightmare. A recurring nightmare that he had where the Bible, this gigantic Bible, would fall out of the sky and he would be crushed by it because of his guilt and his lack of repentance and belief in Jesus. And so Christ continues His work of judgment among the nations in surprising to us sorts of ways. And so how are we to respond to all of this? And and Peter lays it all out right there. Entrust yourself to a faithful Creator as you do good. See, we have the Gospel grammar at work here once again. He's moving from the objective facts of our salvation to how we should live in the present because we have been saved. Let those who suffer according to God's will. And here's the news. If you suffer, it's according to God's will. That should comfort you. It it scares some people, but it should comfort you. that The world is not out of His control. Your circumstances are not um, unknown to God. He has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. Now that suffering can take many forms. It can take the form of a bad marriage. It can take the form of never-ending singleness, illness, unemployment, etc. How are you suffering now? What are the ways in which your life is difficult? Those are the ways in which you suffer according to the will of God. Not apart from the will of God. And so, therefore, entrust their souls or persons to a faithful Creator. We're intended to place our lives, place our circumstances, place our futures into God's hands. This is not something that Peter kind of came up with, but we see in Psalm 31, In your hand I commit or entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And so there in Psalm 31, it's about redemption. You are faithful as seen by the fact that you redeemed me, and because you have done that, O God, I place myself into your hands. We see Jesus doing this upon the cross in Luke 23. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And then He died. So there's a sense in which His last deed before death was committing Himself to the Father. This word, entrust, is slightly different. 
but it gets to that point that we only trust our valuables to trustworthy people. They didn't have banks then in Peter's day. And so if you were going to go on a long trip, you couldn't bring all of your valuables with you and your house was vulnerable. There was no uh, ADT or any other security service to uh, check on your house, okay? And so what you would do is you would take your most valuable possessions and you would give them to a nearby friend or neighbor as if you were placing your life into their hands. Because if you come back home and it's gone, you have nothing. That's the idea here. Do we, do you place your children into the hands of any old stranger? Hey, I need a babysitter tonight. Who's walking down the road? You want to make sure that you know them? Or that they have been screened through some process and that they know what they're doing? Because your children are your most valuable thing. And so, Peter says, your life is valuable. Put it in the hands of the right person. Put it in the hands of your faithful Creator. talked about this briefly in Sunday school because we were dealing with creation. And I quoted from Colossians 1 that idea of, for by Him, referring to Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And one of the things we have to recognize is that we are each part of the all things. That you were created through Christ and for Christ, that in Christ you hold together or are being held together. And if that God can do that, He is the one that we should be entrusting ourselves to. Faith works its way out. And he says, while doing good, while pursuing a course of right action, we are active while we wait for the vindication of God. We are active while we suffer. We are not, as it says in Romans 12, a a similar passage, overcome by evil, but rather we overcome evil with good. You do not meet the alt-right by being Antifa. They're just as wicked. They're not heroes. They're violent people. We overcome evil with good. Not by becoming just as mean and nasty and evil as them, as the church. So we see that what Peter is saying here is that affliction is not meant to stop you from loving God. It's not it's meant to stop you from showing hospitality as we see in this passage. It's not meant to stop you from covering over a multitude of sins. It is not meant to stop you from, in, from utilizing the gifts of grace that you have received to serve the other people. It is not meant to stop any of that. But rather... It's meant to further that. And so, we see 
that when whole households or families get sick, bad things happen. When suffering hits a church, that church can feel forgotten, it can feel forsaken, but in reality, God is at work to purify His household, to purify His living temple. And so He reveals sin and brings repentance. But He also removes the unrepentant. When we're suffering, we can entrust ourselves, we can entrust our circumstances to Him knowing that He created us and is faithful to us in the long term. And so when suffering continues, follow the right course of action as an expression of the faith, hope, and love that you have because of Christ. Because He is a faithful Creator and Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we confess that when hard times hit, we are, we are dismayed. We are often put to flight. We are fearful. We are confused. We are doubtful. We, we experience a wide range of things. And we thank You for Your Word which is meant to silence the false accusations of the accuser. We thank You for Your Word which is meant to sustain us and bind us when we're brokenhearted. It's meant to, to help us to see a fuller view of what's going on. And so may Your Word do that so that we can have faith in the midst of our suffering. So that we can have grace so that we're not overwhelmed when we see our sin. So that we can change as Your Spirit points our eyes to see Jesus. Continue to transform us. Continue in what I think are hard days for us, for me, to purify Your people. Make this, this part of Your living temple a more holy place that we might enjoy great fellowship with You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.